Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. As everyone around here knows, I am an inveterate and not quite indiscriminate, but fairly promiscuous television enthusiast. Scripted and unscripted, comedies and dramas, police procedurals and PBS documentaries, early morning and primetime and late night, limited series and ongoing series, network, cable and streaming, Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, even Apple TV Plus for fuck's sake. I really am a hopped up, tranced out, glassy eyed, postmodern reincarnation of Chauncey Gardner, eyes glued to the tube, spit, dribbling down my bib, saying pathetically over and over, I like to watch. But as everyone around here also knows, despite all of that, I will be the first to tell you that all TV, and even all the TV that I watch religiously and relentlessly, is definitely not created equal. Oh yes, J.H. has his favorites, and although, like everyone else with half a brain, their heads, and whose taste isn't all in their mouths, I am dying for the start of season three of Succession, the truth of the matter is that it's another show about the rich, the decadent, and the depraved that I hold closest to my heart. It's a show that airs on Showtime, the network that gives my show, The Circus, its life. And it's also a show co-created and run by one of my dearest, sharpest, funniest, and most culturally omnivorous and switched-on friends. The show I'm talking about, of course, is Billions, which, just this past Sunday night, after 18 months of delay and disruption due to the pandemic, reached at the end of its fifth season, with a riveting, emotional, elegiac, and twist-laden finale that knocked everyone's socks off. And the friend I'm talking about is our guest today, easily one of the most talented storytellers working in television today, and oh so very much more, the one, the only, Brian Koppelman. The state of our culture is beyond even the ken of Hunter S. Thompson. When you read either of the Fear and Loathing books, and you see the depth of his understanding of what humanity was capable of, both in the dark ways and in the light ways, I think even the guy who invented people doing pineal gland as a drug would have been surprised by the horsey medicine controversy and our unwillingness to stop the onrushing and continuing pandemic. Anyone who not only structures his hell and high water cold open around Hunter S. Thompson, but has the depth and dexterity to reference Hunter's devotion to the pineal gland will always have a seat at my table. And it's fair to say that Brian Koppelman and I have shared a lot of tables and the food on those tables and the many, many, many bottles of Michter's, yes, the rye, the bourbon, and the sour mash, to wash all of that food down and keep our antic, frantic, manic conversations about sports and politics and movies and music, and most importantly the writers we both venerate, flowing late into a lot of evenings and a few early mornings besides. Since the start of this podcast, I have wanted to bring Brian on and try to replicate one of those conversations. And while what you are about to hear does not come close, because sadly, we had to conduct this discussion remotely with Brian in Los Angeles, where he's shooting a new Showtime series that you'll hear some about here and me elsewhere. So there was no opportunity for shared mictors between us. We did still uncork a sprawling talk that I would say almost inevitably was simply too long for a single episode. So once again, like it or not, you've got another two-part Hell and High Water on your hands. The first part dropping right now, right here, and the second dropping tomorrow, Wednesday, October 6th. 
Now, you might be wondering just how much of this week's show is dedicated to billions. And if, God forbid, you don't happen to watch the show, and, you know, I don't know what I could do to help you if you don't, you might be wondering whether this episode of this show will be of any interest to you. Like, how much billions is there going to be here? And if I'm not watching, why would I care? So, look, first, yes, Brian and I did spend a fair amount of time discussing the cultural phenomenon that is billions. And in fact, we even brought in one of the show's most talented and popular cast members, David Costable, plays the iconic character Mike Wags Wagner, whom Vulture just declared the, quote, hedonistic heart of billions, to talk through what it's like to act on a show where Brian Koppelman is the showrunner and where you're reading a lot of the words that Brian and his partner, David Levine, have written. And I'll tell you now, spoiler alert, Costi is nearly as much of a gas as the character Wags that he plays. But the show this week isn't just a two-part Billions fanboy geek out because my buddy Brian is way more than the co-creator and showrunner of one extremely good TV show. He's a guy who, as a college student, discovered Tracy Chapman and went on to produce her first album, the one with Fast Car on it that sold north of 10 million copies and made her a worldwide star. With his partner Levine, he's the co-writer, co-director, and or co-producer of a dozen feature films, including the poker classic Rounders, Ocean's 13, and Solitary Man and the co-director of This Is What They Want, one of the best ever ESPN 30 for 30s about Jimmy Connors' improbable run at the 1991 U.S. Open. And he's the host of the absolutely essential podcast, The Moment, which Brian has been cranking out weekly amid everything else on his plate for the past seven years. But more than that, he's a guy who has suffered serious setbacks and failures and crises of confidence and thought about them deeply. He's as insightful as anyone I know about the creative process, about the psychic obstacles that we all encounter and the resilience and perseverance and guile and determination and grit that it takes to climb over or route around them. He's a guy who, after one disastrous and disheartening movie experience a decade ago for him and Levine, wasn't sure if they'd ever be employed in the industry again. And then the two of them pivoted out of that dark moment straight into billions, their greatest success so far, a show that is now screaming towards its sixth season which starts up in January, specifically on January 23rd, my birthday, motherfuckers. So sit down and take a listen to part one and then come back tomorrow for part two of a conversation with someone I like talking with about as much as anyone on planet Earth in no small part because the good Dr. Koppelman knows that the only way you're ever going to find yourself occupying the commanding heights, luxuriating in the true and only heaven, creatively, professionally, or personally, is after you've been hit with and endured and found yourself lost in, and then finally dug your way out of and found your way through that dark and murky realm where the only things around you are hell and high water. I know your story as much as you know mine, how you came from nothing. Yeah, it's true. Your dad was an insurance salesman. You ate dinner with him every night. My dad was gonzo. I ate dinner wherever I could. And yet you were still in the wealthiest state and the wealthiest country in the world with access to the best health care, schools, infrastructure. And you were born white and male. At a time, that was a huge advantage in the greatest capital market in the history of mankind. The roads were paved for you, Bobby, which is why you were able to move so quickly across them. Wow. I knew you were racked with guilt, but this takes it to a whole different level. Sure, the roads were paved, but I didn't even have a goddamn car. Now, you see, this is where we are different. I don't pretend I'm an ordinary guy got lucky. I am a monster. A carnivorous fucking monster. 
So, uh, hey, everybody, welcome to Hell and High Water. This episode, uh, uh, my friend Brian Koppelman, we're here to talk about Billions. And that was a scene from this season, the fifth season of Billions. That's from the second episode, I believe. Um, two of the key characters there in the show, people know. Damian Lewis, of course, plays Bobby Axelrod. Corey Stoll, a new character on the show, but a very important character on the show in season five. And, and we'll get back to what that clip's about in a couple minutes but I'll say, Brian, um, you know, before we get into all the craziness of how your season was disrupted and how season five got filmed some before the pandemic and then it aired during the pandemic part of it, and then you had an 18 month break and now you're back closing out season five. Now, I think I just want to start by before we get deep into the show, just to say, hey, first of all, how are you? It's great to see you. And second of all, you know, among the many things that have been kind of sources of bonding in our friendship, it's that we've been on this kind of parallel journey where you know, your show, Billions, and my show, The Circus, both got picked up and started at Showtime at essentially the same time back in 2015. And we've been on this sort of parallel journey together. And it's been super satisfying, both because, you know, we both have had all the fun of doing it and doing it really, you know, right in sequence. You're closing your fifth season. We're glad to close our sixth season. We just didn't get shut down by the pandemic the way you guys did because we went out and shot in 2020. But what was really cool about this is various times on Sunday nights, our shows would air back to back. We'd be on at eight, you'd be on at nine. And uh, I don't know, that was always like, I, the whole thing has been a dream in a lot of ways, but uh, being able to kind of go through it hand in hand with you has been super fun. Yeah, it's the best. I mean, I remember in, when the, we were making the first season of the show and you were starting to make your show and, and I remember talking to you a bunch about it. And I remember how supportive you were early on of Billions. I remember when you watched the pilot, John. Yeah. I consider you a, a good friend and, yep. and we've been friends a long time now and you were- you know, really supportive of this whole thing at, at an early stage and publicly so. And I've always appreciated it. I mean, it was easy to be supportive because, you know, I mean, I've been a huge fan of the show from the very beginning. And, and, and I'm also obviously a huge fan of yours. And and both of those are reasons why we're why we're here today. And, and I, I want to say one there's a little complicated thing here about this. We are taping this this episode here in the middle of September. It's going to post in early October. People who are listening to this podcast are going to hear it on the Tuesday after the season five finale of Billions. So sort of strictly speaking, there's nothing we could say here that would be a spoiler because, you know, as I said, the finale will have aired, but to err on the side of caution, I have only seen all of the episodes up through episode 11, which is the penultimate episode. So I haven't seen the finale. Uh, and I made a point of not seeing the finale in a screener so that I wouldn't be at risk of saying anything, even though we're technically wouldn't be spoiling anything. I just worry, Brian, that like, you know, people don't always watch everything on the Sunday night when the show first airs. And there'll be some people who might want to watch it a few days later. And I don't want to be the source of any spoilers. So we're not going to talk about the finale here with one exception, which we'll get to later, which has to do with music. We're going to talk about one thing that I know you've told me and I want to talk about, and we'll do that later on in the show. So that's how we're going to handle this spoiler issue. You know, now I want to get back to the clip that I started the show with here. As I said, Bobby Axelrod, master of the universe, Deca billionaire, hedge fund, impresario, monster, titan, compelling, charismatic. On the other side, Chuck Rhodes, played by Paul Giamatti, lawman, uh, has had various roles in law enforcement and politics throughout the show, but has been essentially Axe's pursuer and Axe's like Chuck's great white whale. And the two of them have been mortal enemies and they've been kind of allies of convenience and have been engaged in these various Machiavellian power struggles. Sometimes other people have been involved, but really the show has kind of revolved around the two of them. It's really just been them. And you've had, you know, these other characters, Taylor Mason played by Asia Kate Dillon. Uh, you know, obviously our friend David Costable is going to be on the podcast in a little while playing Wags. These are important characters, but really there's really not been anybody who's been on the scale of Chuck Rhodes and Bobby Axelrod. 
Well, I would argue that Wendy Rhodes has always been on that scale. In fact, the first season of the show, I would just say, look, we've always thought of it as an ensemble piece. Yes. And of course, there's no doubt that the marketing in the first season is going to market Chuck versus Axe. Yep. Giamatti versus Damien Lewis. But I will tell you that Levine and I, from the beginning, had this idea that Wendy Rhodes was going to win the first season. Yes. We felt we would have succeeded if by the end of the first season, people realized they were rooting for Wendy. They thought they were supposed to pick one of those two guys season one. But by the end of season one, what they were rooting for was Wendy Rhodes. And then Taylor Mason comes on, right? And Dave Costable, who you and I are going to talk to together. But absolutely right that Michael Prince, played by the great Corey Stahl, becomes a key character in the present and future of, of Billions. No doubt about that. And very consciously added Corey as another figure who could carry a lot of story and a lot of thematics. And to us, he's, he's just crushing it. I mean, you played that scene, and I remember shooting that in the before times. I mean, just to say, for, for anybody who doesn't know, Billions, you know, had this interesting thing where you guys were partway through season five. The pandemic shut you down. We all got to watch some episodes, I think five episodes. No, um, seven episode aired and then five afterwards. Yeah. Okay. So seven episodes before the pandemic shut you down. And then we all waited for a year and a half. And now we've got the rest of season five. And that's what you mean by the before time. You mean that that was something you guys shot before the pandemic. And it was a second episode of the season, right? Yes. Where you were really kind of introducing, in a way, both introducing Michael Prince and also introducing the rivalry that these guys are two sides of the same coin, but very, very distinctly different sides of that coin. That's right. And very early on when we were talking to billionaires to research the show, one of them said, what you have to know about Billy's, this guy calls himself and other billionaires Billy's, is uh, <laughs> we really like to be the only one in a room. Right. And we carried that around with us for a long time Yeah. and then decided at a certain point we had to introduce another Billy who was as powerful as Axe. Right. And see what that would do. Yeah. And Corey is somebody David and I wanted to work with for a really, really long time and tried and we could never quite get it together. And so it, it was very clear to us that this was the dude to play this part. I think the character is a great character who has a lot of potential miles on those tires, number one. Number two, he's great, full stop, and he's great in it. Like you want to watch him in that part. And it happened that I was with our mutual boss, David Nevins, who run Showtime last night in L.A., and Dave and I were both like making both those points. He's great and he's great in this part and you want to watch him. You're like, well, I want to watch this guy. I want to see what he's going to do with this character. It's fucking great. It's riveting. It's true, man. He's just shown up and delivered so hard. And it's been unbelievably rewarding for Levine and me because, I mean, some people who go to a ton of theater or see everything really clocked him. And of course we clocked him on, on House of Cards. Yeah. But when he was in Midnight in Paris and doing Hemingway, you couldn't help but go, what the fuck is that? That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it blew our minds, right? And then he came and did a table read for us of a different thing, a movie that didn't happen. Yeah. And he blew everybody away. And so we always had it in the back of our minds and then had tried to get him to do some smaller parts on Billions and we would meet and talk and he would say, are you sure this is the part? Huh. Are you sure this is the thing you want to yeah. deploy me on? For. And we would go, no, okay, let's all wait. And then we were finally able to have him come to our office and say, okay, man, we want to give you the real thing. We want to right. make you this guy. And he immediately said, I'm in, I'm in, let's go. So here's a question I want to ask you about the fifth season. And because you and I know each other as well as we do, I think I can ask you this question, whether you think that COVID was good for you. And I, I mean that good for the show, 
and I'll, I'll say why I think it was. I love everything you do. And as you said before, I'm a massive supporter of all your work and a massive supporter of the show. I thought like that at the beginning of season five, you guys were a little tired. I felt like the first couple episodes of the fifth season, I was like, these guys have been running balls out for a long time and they feel like maybe they need to refill the tank a little bit. And I felt like when you came back from COVID, the show was on fire. These episodes that are post-COVID have been just incredible. Now, I know there's a structure to a season, and I know how seasons build, and I know all that. But I'm just asking, maybe I'm just totally wrong, but I felt like there was an energy depletion that you guys then had some time to rest in a way and got creatively rejuiced and came back for the second half of that season just on fire with ideas and all the energy in the world. I completely understand the question. Very often, the way we tell this story starts at a certain pace and then shifts its pace. We really did break the season, John, and pretty much write the whole thing pre-COVID. We were shooting, you know, maybe we had an episode left to write, but we had broken it. Yeah. Introducing a new major character and trying to grapple with the thematics requires a certain deliberateness in the storytelling and a certain kind of patience. And then if you're going to do that, you have to give a certain kind of candy to the audience in another section, meaning maybe runs that are funny or less weighty, right? Because you're trying to earn the time. Because for me, that scene you played, that scene is one of my favorite scenes ever in Billions with Corey and and Axe going at each other. And I could point to other scenes in the beginning of the season that Paul Giamatti played that are like that too. But certainly ending that first half on seven, an episode very, very well directed by Dave Costable, first episode he directed. But that was never supposed to be a a cliffhanger-y episode. And we had to re-edit it. And we had to take things out of that episode, stories that had to die because we understood where we were. We have to accept the reality. The reality is- We're going away for a while for an indeterminate period of time. We have no idea when we're coming back. It could be weeks, it could be months, it could be- Yeah, man, we had to put a period on that and an exclamation, right? But what it allowed, I think, well, a couple things happened. One, we were able to get our friend Neil Berger to come back and direct- episodes nine and 10, and we were able to get Dan Addias to come direct 11 and 12. Those are incredible directors. And so having Neil, especially who, you know, Dan's phenomenal, but I mean, the the relationship we have with Neil Berger, who directed the pilot, directed the second episode, we produced three of his movies. Yeah. And so knowing we were handing these episodes off to Neil to relaunch us, right? Because eight, we had half completed yeah. or partially completed with Matt yeah. McClude. It was wonderful. And AD would come up in our system. But I think that in nine and 10, there's a boldness. And maybe what you're reacting to is actually the guy who, along with us, established what Billions was, which was Neil, right. came back on episodes nine and 10 of season five to go like, Boom, this is it. Right. I think that's part of it. It's a thing that's not talked about that often. Yeah. Because Neil's a filmmaker, right? And he comes in and he goes, here, I am going to help you do this. Dude, speaking of filmmaking, there is a scene in episode 10. And and I know you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. This is the episode really where Chuck and Mike Prince are really coming together to conspire against Axe to try to take him down. And they have put on a show. But there's a moment that comes at the end of this episode that is just so kind of crazily cinematic. And and I, I think you're going to know the moment I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And they go down. They've done their act with all of the other law enforcement people over Zoom. And Corey stole smoking a joint in the morning. And Chuck's daughter comes in. 
And he kind of hides the weed and Chuck says, you know, yeah, it's just the last of your grandfather's cigar, you know. And then they go into the kitchen and Chuck cooks them breakfast. It's like no other scene I've ever seen in Billions. Like, how long does that scene go on? It's like five minutes. Yeah, four minutes. Like four, four minutes. minutes of silence. And Chuck Rhodes cooking eggs for his daughter and Michael Thomas Aquinas Prince. And no one speaks. And it's just him cooking these eggs. And it's it stands out. At first, I'm like, how long is this going to go on? And then I was like, the more it went on and the more I was into it, I was like, this is such a cinematic yes. thing. It's like not like the normal pace of the show, which is so fast and paced up and like so metabolized and, you know, hyperactive in a great way. But it was suddenly just like this deep pause and reflection on this new relationship in front of you there. It's like incredible, man. Incredible. Uh, I'm so glad you're bringing all this up. Incredible. And I'm thinking back to what you said because you said to think about it. So I'll say a few things. One, one thing that did happen when we all came back is I think there's this incredible gratitude to be able to work and to do the thing we do, right? Yeah. And so I think when you say the energy, yes, we may have written it all before, but the performance is like, I look at the work Paul Giamatti does in the second half of this season. He's always, look, Paul Giamatti is always incredible. He's always at the highest level. There's nobody like Paul. But what he does, the way he thinks about Chuck Rhodes and there's sort of shifts in Chuck Rhodes and what Chuck Rhodes has learned about men like Prince and Axe, you know, and there's a lightness to his step as he's doing this stuff in the second half of the season. And not just because he's lighter and he's shaved, but there's an approach here yeah. that uh, is just spectacular. And yeah, that sequence, again, Neil shot that sequence. It's inspired by the end of Big Night, which I don't know if you remember that movie. Yeah, sure, sure. And I mean, our mutual friend, David Nevin, said something to me about it, which was like, the show's earned the moment of those guys eating the eggs. Yes. And he was so pleased that we did it and that we allowed that thing to breathe in that way. And I've had so many people mention it to me, how much they got out of that episode. And we were thrilled with the way that came together. And it is a beautiful, um, it's just so beautifully acted. Yes. It's so beautifully performed. It's so beautifully shot. Well, the fact that that shot that I'm talking about is, is a shot from way up above. It's some crane shot where it's like looking down on them in the kitchen. It's so unusual. Our editors are incredible. To be this incredible um, a group of, of, of editors led by Marnie Mayer, who's cut every, from the first season. And these editors, Joel and Lewis and Dana and, and Marnie, just have done incredible work with this stuff. And, you know, we made this choice to leave that sequence that way. I'm so glad that yeah. it hit you like that. Giamatti secretly is uh, Chuck smoking a joint too in that scene. Okay. Well, they each I, have I, a little joint. When next time you see it, they each have a little joint and they, they throw them away. It's a nice, it's a really lovely moment. I like when Chuck's daughter appears yeah. and he brushes the, he brushes the ash off of his yeah. vest. It's like, I it too. I've brushed ash off my vest so many times in this situation awesome. like that, that I'm like, oh my God, that's me. That's so great. I'm, I know I'm not the only person who was privy to these discussions when before Billions launched. You said it was nice that I was so supportive of Billions, but I couldn't not have been supportive of Billions because I love you and I knew what a big deal Billions was for you. And because we talked about it so much before you launched it, when you were creating it, yes. before you sold it, before it was a, a thing. And we sat at baseball games. We sat at, at Chase back and then at Chase Stadium or maybe the early days of City Field. I can't remember. You know, and sat no there for, during baseball games for hours listening to you talk about the first three seasons, which you had written really, you and Dave had really, you knew what the three seasons were before you wrote the pilot. Yeah, we knew those things. So you were like, I have the three, I have three seasons mapped in my head from basically from the beginning. And we talked about it a lot. So I was invested in it at an early phase. But I want you to talk about that. Why billions? Why this world? 
why at the moment when you and Dave started thinking about it, along with Andrew, you started thinking about it. You wanted to make a thing about these kinds of people in this world and that you could tell this was special before it got made, before it got bought, before it became a thing. You were, knew you were on to something big and you, all of your discussion about it was invested in this, was, was vested with this sense of like, I know how big this can be. I know how great this can be. I know how how rich and deep and powerful this can be. When it when there hadn't been a scene shot, you knew all that. And, and I just want you to talk about where that came from. Well, where I have to start is that we had met, you and I, but when we really started to become friends, I think it was 2011. In fact, I know it was 2011. We had dinner at Perla, a, a group of us, and I had just come back from the worst experience of my professional life, making a movie. I won't even say the name. There's no reason to say the name of it, but like, I don't want to like make those people feel bad. But I know. I had a horrible experience, which is important because when you come out of an experience where every part of it was professionally torturous and it leaves you the opposite. I knew this movie that we'd worked on was going to bomb. Beyond that, I knew it deserved to bomb. I remember saying it at a table with a bunch of people. I mean, Savannah Guthrie was at the table and I like said it to Savannah. Uh, everybody. I was like this. I just came back from a horrible experience. And the worst part of it is I, I know that I'm going to have to live with the fact that in a year this movie is going to come out and it's going to be horrible, right? So when, when you live through that and then you live through the people who represent you saying, hey, I don't, I don't know if you're going to be employable. I don't know if anyone's going to be willing to work with you. Well, you have a couple choices, right? And you could decide, well, I better try to just like make a bunch of money. I better take a million jobs or you can like take some responsibility and go, okay, well, I have to find a way to remember why I wanted to, what did David and I want to accomplish at the beginning when we first wrote Rounders? Yeah. We wrote our first movie, right? This is all real too. This, I mean, I, like, this is really what happened. Of course, yes. We had tr first tried to do a story set in the hedge fund world in 2007. And we wrote something for another network and then the crash happened and it couldn't happen. But we had studied and put in time at hedge funds, real time interviewing people. And both of us had experience with they were men mostly with these men who were really nation states. Yeah. And we'd started to think about what it means to be a human who lives like a nation state. Yeah. And when you ask what's compelling about it, it's like nobody, yes, there'd been movies about rich people, but really examining that. And then we had a bunch of friends who were kind of on the fringes of law and organized crime. And they would tell us things about certain, I remember Dave and I once went to a barbecue and a very high up law enforcement lawyer was grilling with a very high up member of the mob. And we watched that happening at somebody's house. Yeah. And it was fascinating. To, I'll tell you off air, but that was yeah. fascinating. Right. And we saw how these prosecutors, many of them, while doing the public good, were doing more good for their own careers. Not Preet. You know, Preet's a separate person. Preet wasn't originally in our minds, right? But we were looking at people like Spitzer, Christy, uh, 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 Cuomo, and um, Giuliani. Yeah. And we were looking at the ways in which they serve the public good, but really they serve their own good. And so we realized you set a nation state against someone with the kind of discretion, because something people don't realize still is the amount of discretion United States attorneys have. Yep. And we were like, United States attorneys, they get to decide who the fuck they want to prosecute and for what. But like we went and met with a, a guy who was very high up at SEC enforcement, and he talked about his amount of discretion. And he talked about 
U.S. attorney's amount of discretion. Realize, well, that discretion is great if someone's serving the public interest. It's not great if what they're ultimately serving is their own interest. And realize if you set that nation state against a king, because that's essentially what U.S. attorneys are in terms of their powers, you would have the chance to do something that would warrant telling a story for a really long time. Plus, we noticed how Trump and Mark Cuban, and I like Mark Cuban's been a friend of mine for a long time, but there was a moment where Mark and Donald Trump were the two biggest stars on reality television before Trump ever declared that he was going to run. And it was like, why did America seem to want this particular kind of aspirational being to be their avatar for success? And, you know, why did things like verbal acuity and charisma and, you know, a certain kind of intellect take the place of like character things like empathy Uh, decency. So all that stuff, John, and when we started coming up with the construct, and when that happened, you know, we had started working on this idea, and then an agent, a guy named Joe Cohn, said, like, Andrew Ross Sorkin's working on something similar. You guys should get together. So we got together with Andrew and and together began conceiving of how the first episode could happen. We wrote it without selling it. We told Andrew, we're not going to pitch this. We're going to only interested in doing this if we write it on spec because we want to be able to control its destiny if we nail it. And we just gave everything we had to it. You know, David and I gave everything we had to making sure that we wrote an undeniable first episode and that would give us some ability to find a suitor who we felt would make the show, not just buy the show. And David Nevins and his team, Amy Israel and Gary Levine, they they stepped up and made it clear to us that they would make it. But as soon as we finished the script and then rewrote it, I remember sending it to our friend Craig Mason, who's a hugely important screenwriter and filmmaker and an incredible guy. I remember saying, Craig, we wrote this thing and I need real notes from you because I think it could be great. Before we send it out, I would like you to give the most strenuous notes, like the most intense notes you can. And it's not a favor you ask lightly of another professional because we're all so busy. Sure. And Craig spent two and a half hours on the phone with us going through like scene by scene. Right. Little tiny things. I will say that I knew that this was so important that we were so close that I didn't want to leave a stone unturned. Right. And- it was incredibly helpful. And that tells you just how deep inside this we were, that we were inviting the harshest criticism to stress test it before we put it out into the world. There's so many television shows, even great ones, that you go back and you watch the pilot. And, and you know, you're like, I understand why this got made, but the pilot, meh, you know, okay. Like it takes, you know, we all, we all understand. You're introducing new characters. The characters aren't fully formed. Of course. There's a million reasons why. You know, and there's this whole theory that I know you and I, I'm sure have discussed on multiple occasions about how the greatest television shows are never their greatest in their first season. Season two and season three is when they really are on fire. Correct. And I think it was Todd Gitlin when he wrote his book about Botchko introduced this theory, like writing about how Hill Street Blues worked and that there's these structural things about television that mean that great television series become great in season two and season three and often then run out of steam in season four. <laughs> That's not happened to you guys so far, but there, it seemed, I just find it super interesting that you can detect this pattern. We really found the show in the fourth episode of the first season, I think. But the pilot's very strong. I agree with you. The pilot's strong. It's a very good pilot for a pilot. A, a tabula rasa, you know, it's a very strong, undeniable is the word that you used. And I, I'd be surprised if there weren't other people, if David Davis hadn't bought it. I think you would have found a home for this thing somewhere because it was very, very strong. And the cast was obviously incredible. So now we get to season five and there's a feeling partly, I think, because of this COVID thing hanging over it and partly because of some of the things that have happened. People know about, you know, what happened with Damien's wife, who was a brilliant actress, Helen McCrory is a gen- was a genius uh, of an actor. Yeah, Helen McCrory, abs- absolute genius. I mean, 
I can't even tell you, you know, the number of people I've converted to the cause of Peaky Blinders. I am like the the ultimate apostle for that show. Whenever he's like, what were you watching? What's any good? I'm like, have you seen Peaky Blinders? If you haven't seen Peaky Blinders, you need to stop watching everything else and go watch that show. And it's it's really one of my favorite shows in the history of television. And in the same way that Maggie Siff is in some ways and has been the heart and soul of Billions, so is Polly Gray, the character that Helen McCrory played on Peaky Blinders. I mean, it's a, a super cool show with a lot of testosterone in it. And yet there's this, a bunch of very important, strong female characters and Polly is the strongest of them. And in some ways I'm looking forward to the show coming back on the air, but I don't really know how it goes on without Polly in the middle of the show. It's such a huge loss. And of course, a devastating loss for Damien, who I know struggled with her illness for years, literally, right? You know, it was a thing that went on for a very long time and, and was super painful for him and it was something that he really he's made the billions through, you know, dealing with that uh, family crisis. And there have been a lot of those, right, in your billions family. Damien's is not the only one. And I guess that's sort of true of all of us. We've all had a lot of shit to deal with. Um, <laughs> uh, the world, the country, all of us, our families, our lives over the course of the last year, it has been tough. But, you know, every once in a while, you're looking for something that that gives you some sense of hope. And, and it's funny, like, a lot of people last summer thought we were coming out of the pandemic, and then we really weren't because of the Delta variant. But somehow it sort of feels like right now, as I go around, I'm back traveling again for the circus. It's like, well, things are starting to move a little bit here. And and one of those things that kind of makes me feel like things are back on track is Billions. And the fact that, you know, we're in the middle of this kind of incredible run of final shows of season five, and then we're going to race off into season six. And, you know, the show has always had an incredible amount of joy to it. And the joy in the way you guys do it is a great counterbalance to some of the darkness around us. And we're going to talk about many of the aspects of the joys of billions and other aspects of many other kinds of joys. When we come back, we're going to take a break right now. We'll come back and dig into some of the things that make billions so delightful on the other side here with my friend, Brian Koppelman on Helen Highwater. And we are back here on Hell and High Water with my buddy, Brian Koppelman. Before the break, Brian, I was talking about the joys of billions. And I think about, you know, there are so many things about the show that you can see the delight that you and Dave have in making it in like, I think every scene, even the scripts you don't write yourselves, you have your writer's room, you have a bunch of really talented writers who are coming to work on the show in addition to the two of you, but your guys' fingerprints are all over the show. And one of the things that bears your fingerprints most is just how wised up the show is to every aspect of popular culture and everything that's been produced in, in popular culture in kind of post-war America, post-World War II America. Here's a piece of sound that goes deep into season five. And I, I love this scene. And it's it's part of how the experience of a lot of people watch Billions is a scene like this and the reactions to it. So I want to play the scene and then we'll talk about what I mean when I say that this is kind of a quintessential Billions moment. Bobby Axelrod has to be wiped off the face of the earth. You're right. So do you want my help? No. Hold on. You came to me. He came to me and said he needed my help. Now I'm ready. I came to you when I needed you, and the getting was good. But you thought you were above me. And now, Axe got a bank. Fuck, I gave him a bank, me and her. And now that he's coming for you, you want me to what? Get hit with more shrapnel so you can campaign for a Nobel? No. Fuck no. Every time I move, I make his life better and mine worse. I even tried my luck with the Delaware AG, only to be rolled into the street like a bum, so I've come to a halt. Now, I can't lose any more of myself to this. You go figure it out. I'm offering titanic resources. And what do you need us for?
That cupcake makes a mess. We got a case again. Well, work for Bobby D. I figured it's worth a shot. <laughs> so Corey Stoll, uh, having his moment here with Chuck Rhodes, and uh, he walks out of the door there at the end, and Chuck turns to his April deputy, and she says the line about that I did not know. I but I I watch Billions, knowing how the show works now. When I hear a line that comes out of her mouth. That cupcake, that cupcake makes, a, makes mess. a mess. We got a case again. I'm like, okay, yeah. what's that from? That's a pull. So I pause the show and I go and I type it into Google and then I find out, oh, it's a line from Copland, yeah. a movie with Sly Stallone and, and Bobby De Niro. I'm, oh, now I see the Bobby De Niro reference. Listen to me, you deaf fuck. I offered you a chance when we could have done something. I offered you a chance to be a cop and you blew it. You blew it. People are all the same. That cupcake makes a mess. We got a case again. And then I realized when I watched the scene that it's not just a pop culture pull. It's not just a reference. It's a, a remake of the scene. The scene, and of course, it's meta on multiple levels, right? Because the the structure of the scene is the same. And then he's referring to the fact that he's doing a thing from a movie. It's just, you know, that's so Brian. That's just billions, man. That's a very billions-y thing. I, 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 start, I teed that up by saying the show is at an inflection point, I believe, right? Sure. Some of it has to do, as I said, with COVID. Some of it has to do with it's been on for five years. And some of it has to do with some of the things that some of the actors have gone through and where the characters are right now. And this notion that at the end of five, after, you know, Axe and Bobby are fighting, then they're not fighting, then they're allies, they're temporary allies. Now they have different rivalries that they're pursuing. And all these things have happened over the course of four seasons. But in season five, we're back to Chuck Rose trying to tear down Bobby Axelrod. Yes. Bobby Axelrod's more trying to turn down Michael Prince. But that core thing of Chuck's obsession with Axe is back center stage again. And it does feel to me like I said, watershed moment, turning point, some kind of a crescendo for this series. So just tell me where, what is Michael Thomas Aquinas Prince, what does he do for you? Axe as a character is not concerned with questions of conventional morality. Right. And Michael Prince is. Yes, very much so. And I think the show's asking this question about whether there's such thing as a good billionaire. Yes. And it feels like a question that a lot of us or the culture is wrestling with. 100%. 100%. You know, we're already deep into shooting season six. And that question continues to be prosecuted over the course of season six. Is that what six is about? It's raised in five, right? Because there's a moment where Chuck says to to Prince, some people would say that given all the money you've made, you're inherently bad. In fact, I built my career in some ways on that, he says. I'm paraphrasing, but something like that. Correct. Yes. But it's not the central animating thing of season five, but you're saying this becomes a central thing? A central. Like when this airs, the season trailer for season six is going to be up. So you can click off of this and watch that trailer. And I think it'll be clear that that question is prosecuted throughout the season. So we've all seen people who hold themselves out as moral beings and actually know they're not moral beings. Yes. But what happens when someone holds themselves out as a moral being, believes that to be the case, and has to grapple with, and the show and the world has to grapple with, the structural aspects that by their very existence question that notion force the, the questioning of that notion. And and to us, it gave, talk about n- new life. I mean, it just breathes life into the story that we're incredibly animated to be telling. And I can't wait for people to see season six. Well, I think it's part of why this season excited me so much, to be honest with you, because 
There's a thing that happens when you know this, when you get into a groove. Again, I, I mentioned the popular culture thing. It's There's one way in which it's glib. We are both incredibly glib. We both are music nuts and movie nuts and TV nuts and sports nuts. And we're constantly citing trivia and we're constantly throwing in lines. Yeah. I heard you and Tarantino talk about this. There's this kind of people who live in this stuff and love that element, right? Yes. And part of the show, there's a patina of that, which is delightful. Delightful, right? But there's this other thing that happens when you're really deeply embedded in the culture, in our politics, in our society, in the mores, the way, the warp and weft of American life, right? When you're really in that, shit starts to happen that's, it seems like it's happenstance, but it's not. Partly, it's an outgrowth of how deeply embedded in the culture you are. And the thing I'm thinking of right now is you're prosecuting, raising this question at the moment when... There's a huge controversy not that long ago about AOC and whether she was cool for her to wear to the Met Ball a gown that says tax the rich. That's the kind of thing that happens when you, as you're a creator, Brian, you know that you didn't make that happen. But those are the kinds of things that happen and they feel like karma or kismet. But the truth is you're just swimming in the culture so much that, of course, there are these things that occur that then reflect and amplify back on the show and are reflected and refracted in a way that makes the show richer and makes it feel like it's attached to the moment in a way that you could never have planned, but it's not an accident either, right? Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I mean, I, 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 com- I do know what you're saying and, and it's, um, well, you saw it over and over. I mean, when we had Chuck Rhodes in an earlier season admit his own sexual proclivities and get out in front of the story. It aired after Jeff Bezos had done the same, meaning avoided being blackmailed or extorted by speaking out and and getting ahead of it. We wrote it long before that happened. And that kind of thing has happened with Billions over and over and over again. again. Look, it's happened on lots of shows. There's nothing special about Dave and me, but it's happened on our show a number of times. And I would say the pop culture thing, yeah, obviously uh, anyone who's listened to me talk for thousands of hours on my own podcast (laughs) or on any others knows that I have the capacity for glibness if I, I need to go in that direction. But look, what's really happening most of the time in the writing of billions when Dave and I are writing is we are truly just trying to make each other laugh. And like, I would say another thing about seasons five and six and also super pumped with this other show we're working on is that a woman named Beth Schachter joined in season five. And I've been friends with Beth forever. And Beth's an executive producer with us and helps us show run on both shows. And Beth's vision is incredibly crucial in the asking of these questions and in in figuring out the answers. And we have really many writers have contributed a tremendous amount. And that is not, those aren't just words. Those are facts. Like I said, Wes Jones wrote that great speech. Many, many things I can point out. Yes. But the thing you're talking about, the patina, the sound of billions, the voice of the show is obviously David and my voice. Yep. And we write our scenes separately. We all outline together, but Dave and I write our scenes separately. So Dave's writing half an episode. I'm writing half an episode. Even when we rewrite, you know, when we're, someone gives us a script and we're going to rewrite their script so it sounds like billions, one of us goes first and then the other guy goes. Right. That whole process is David trying to entertain me and me trying to entertain David. David right. We've been best friends since we're 14. Yeah. So that cop line shit, I mean, that is just us making the other guy smile. Yes. And feeling like if we can make the other guy laugh within the context of this and we can earn it, meaning it's not a cheap laugh, but like you say, it's embedded, yeah. it makes yeah. sense, yeah, it makes the yeah. thing better. Yeah. Then what we've learned is it's going to work because part of the failure of that other thing and, and, and coming back was, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to do this 
exactly the way we want to do it. And we're going to put everything we care about into it. And we're going to amuse each other. And we're going to hope that in the same way, that's how we wrote Rounders. And that's how I wrote, I wrote Solitary Man. And that's how we wrote Knockaround, guys. And Ocean's 13, it's like, that's the thing we do when we're at our best. Right. And that's what we try to do for each other. And then whoever wants to come along, that's fucking great. Well, we're going to take a break, play a word from our sponsors, and then come back and talk about like who gets to come along for the ride. We have an old friend of yours, uh, a special guest coming on. I've never done this before on this podcast. It's usually like we either have a guest or we have two guests or we have three guests, but we never have one guest, but then a special guest star who pops in. But I thought it was appropriate for this special Billions episode. We've got David Costabile Wags from Billions who's going to come in and talk to us a little bit about what it's like to actually say the words that Brian and Dave and their incredible team of writers make on this show so let's listen to this ad let's do some business and then we'll come back with dave to talk some more about billions and theater and art and life and everything here on hell and high water with my friend brian compliment And we're back on Hell and High Water with Brian Koppelman. We've been talking billions and we're going to keep talking billions for a little while longer here before we switch to other topics. And, you know, as awesome as it is to have my friend Brian here on the show, we wanted to give you, our loyal listeners, a double stuffed Oreo full of awesomeness by doing something we've never done before on Hell and High Water. Like we've never had like a drop in, but we thought we would do that today and have a drop in from the cast of Billions. So it's in, in honor of the now concluded by the time you hear this, now concluded fifth season of Billions, we have with us the one and only, and I do mean one and only, David Costable. Uh, of course, he plays Wags on Billions, uh, fan favorite uh, many ways. I mean, when you think about some of the most fun, demented shit that's happened on Billions over the last five years, a lot of it's had to do with Wags. And David, uh, thanks for being here. It is awesome to have you here. And, you know, when I asked Brian which of the cast members we should get to come on, he was like, get Costable for a variety of reasons that I will discuss. But as I said, there are many we're incredible actors on this show. It's an amazing cast. But when I think of fan favorites, I, you know, you are one of the, the ones, the most beloved people on the show. And there's a particular wagsiness, uh, a strut and, and the volcanic temper of wags. And along with his kind of the combination of poetry and profanity is what makes wags wags. So I want to listen to something to kind of demonstrate what, what it is that is the essence of Wags. And so this is from the fifth season we're going to play that just came to an end a couple nights ago. Let's listen to Wags, the man himself, reaming out a much younger man, an associate at Axe Capital by the name of Tuck. Does my office look any different, Tuck? The tablecloth? The candlelight? Maybe the beautiful young inamorata sitting right here. Do any of these signs tell you that now is not a good time? Let's review some basics. I am the goddamn CEO of Axe Bank. I am neither your department head nor the person you come to with your imbecilic questions. I have much, much bigger fish on my metaphorical plate and a fucking cold coca vat on my actual plate and nobody likes cold cock! You know what I'm saying? I think we all know what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when somebody writes that line for you, you'd be like, nobody likes cold cock. You're just like, yeah, you know how to lean into that. I got to say it's a mouthful. 
when I saw you uncork that particular soliloquy, I thought to myself, now I know what all my employees feel like because that's sort of me. Like, <laughs> that's, all, what you, that's what I'm you all, do. I'm almost, that's, a, that's a Monday morning? It's a Monday morning in my normal life. <laughs> Brian, Brian knows I have a little bit of an explosive temper and, and I'm prone to profanity occasionally. You guys have known each other for a long time, right? Tell me this story. Brian just told me you guys have known each other since college, right? Correcto. We really have. Yeah. Brian was the BMOC on campus. And everybody knew him. He literally would strut around campus and be like, ooh, there goes Brian Koppelman. This is at Tufts University, correct? Tufts. And, and of course, my view of this is entirely different. But yeah, yes, no, that was- No one knew who I was. I was a little theater nerd, just trying to do my thing, doing my uh, Schiller. Costi <laughs> was so good at acting. John, so- Tufts had a very serious theater program. And the great thing was for people who were English majors, like I was, like my buddy Peter Zizzo was, we could do the thing that we were doing, but they had open auditions. And we could go and, and do stuff in the theater. Like I was a, a drama minor. And we could go play around in the, in the theater. But got people like Costi were very serious about this. And you knew they were serious by the way they sort of looked at us. I mean, they looked at us like dilettantes. And so, yes, if Dave thought were. I... So, sorry, sorry now. What now? What? Which they which they were. And you love uh, the theater. You love the American theater, right? You just you're so dedicated to the theater, theater history, just different playwrights. I, I mean, I think over working in the theater. I mean, I, acting in the theater. I see Costi's crawling right back into. He was one of these guys. So I don't know if you ever saw Barton Fink, but Costi was one of these people who thought that we were going to save the world by making a theater for the people of the people by the people. Correct. And he still that, thinks that I think uh, a living correct. a living theater that reflects. Yeah. The way we live, and well, I was just you, not the way you live, and the way, the way regular people live. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, well, Mister <laughs> Mister Series Regular in Season Six. If you want to throw that at me, I think you're living just fine. Uh, but what happened, John? And there's a true yep. story, and it's a story I love. So we were in an acting class together, and the truth is, we would kind of fuck with each other, but we there was a lot of fondness there too. But I always felt very judged by Costi. Like, oh, this guy doesn't think I'm serious about this. Even though I fucking loved everything about going to acting class, right? What fun to be playing with words and doing it. But Costi and I did a scene together and I have this distinct memory because what was happening was at first I was like this fucking clown who takes himself so seriously and takes the theater program so seriously. And like I would get parts and stuff, which the theater people hated, but we did this scene together. And the moment we started doing this scene together, Costi just became the character he was doing. Do you remember what the scene was? Say so I don't. It was like a, we were in like kind of experimental class. I don't really remember what the scene was. But what I remember was suddenly Dave was the guy, John. And... I was just a guy playing around. I had a good verbal acuity like I do, and I was able to like make my way through something, right? right? But I realized in that instant, that's an actor. I'll never be that. And luckily, it wasn't a, something that I wanted to pursue, but I yeah. knew in that instant, oh, that's the real thing. Right. If you think about like what you think of how your your conception of what actors are and aren't formed, you know, you're in college you're talking about here, right? Mm -hmm. So you're still pretty young. Was that like a formative thing for you? Not just that you admired his skill, but that it kind of gave you some insight into like what your platonic ideal of what a real actor was? The answer is yes. In dead seriousness, I can tell you. Yeah. I had such incredible regard for Dave because I, and I thought he was in the same ways he thought I was ridiculous because everyone's an archetype at college. Right. Uh, we knew each other. We both knew the other guy was like worthy and, and like there was a scenario in which we could be friends, but there was this gulf because 
We were, I was a nerd and he was a power broker. That's not true. But basically, it's funny because in the theater it was different. But I, I looked at him, John, and I was like, that guy is going to be a test for me, a marker. Because that guy's supposed to make it and he's supposed to become a working actor. It's so hard to become. I was like, that yeah. guy is supposed to be on television, in the theater. And I tried to track it. This is pre-internet. And every few years or so, he would pop into my head. I'd be like, what happened to that Dave Costable guy? He was so great. He was so compelling. He was so original and yet so grounded. And when I finally was able to track it and I saw he got on Broadway, you know, and he had a, a big part in Titanic, did it for hundreds of, 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 of nights of that show, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nights of that show. And then he got on The Wire. And I just wrote him like a, a fan letter. And I was like, hey, I think you'll probably remember me. I just want you to know how pleased I am to see that you're a working actor because you deserve this. And it means a lot to me. Then we got to see each other and started to become friendly again. Then David and I cast him in 2009, Solitary Man, and then got him in another movie of ours. And Dave was, in my mind, the measure of whether there was any fairness in the world of the arts. Because if he didn't make it, it wasn't fair. And when he started making it, I was like, you see, there is some merit-based stuff. And I did write you that note. like So that's a true story. He did. That's true. It's a good thing I made it. Thank God. Yeah, that really, I was going to say, if you had just imagine you would have crushed Brian. Jesus. His whole, his whole career would be, Brian would not be anything like what never he is today. that loser. God, yeah, he didn't so, do anything. He never really panned out, did he? And I was yeah. wrong, which is the yeah. hardest thing for Brian to <laughs> That would have been the worst part, John. The worst part. The worst part. <laughs> Maybe yeah. wrong would have been awful. Would, yeah. Brian would, have been, Brian would have been like, the guy's a nobody. He's in poverty. He's an alcoholic. Loser. He's like living in the gutter. He's a loser. I don't really give a shit about that. What I yeah. really give a shit about was that it proved me wrong. Did I somehow err? Am I imperfect in some way? It's a just bad like, it turns read out, when I was 21? Impossible. Yes. Costi, though, how much do you think, John, can I ask him one question? Because I think, it, how much, how do you? You can, yeah. Like, because your question, John, really has made me think we're, we're doing this banter. Like your question about that, what it taught me, back then, even looking at him. Yeah. Dave, I mean, don't you think, or do you think, I don't lead you, that your actual, even though you, you cast off a lot of, of, of the outer affects of being that serious about it, but do you think that the fact that it meant that much to you and you imbued it with that much meaning grounded you and set you on the course to become the actor that you did become? Like, was it crucial to be that way on some level? Maybe, you know, there are a lot of people who believe in it, like a religion, I would have to say that my faith in it is very deep. And when you brush away all the cynicism and rage, there is actual vocational devotion to yes. the idea about words and storytelling and people and human emotions and that we can change others and that we can bring them joy and relief and pleasure and laughter. And I believed it so deeply and I never looked around like I wasn't going to do it. I, I just was like, I'm going to fucking do it. Like, yeah. get out of my way. Like, I'm going to fucking do it. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't, on that level, it didn't really matter to me. I mean, I, I wanted to succeed. I wanted to do it. But success also was starting a free Shakespeare company in Albany, New York. And I believed we could, in fact, change the burgers of Albany and that that was going to mean something. And it did for us. It meant something for us doing it. It meant something for the people there. But it also was like, okay, there can be more storytelling. There can be a deeper exploration of all of these things, of words, of storytelling, of story. I think ultimately it's the thing that has sustained me the longest, that devotional belief. It balances out a bunch of the crap because there's a bunch of crap. On your work in a way. And I know both of you, I know Brian obviously much better than I know you, Dave. 
but just listening to you talk about your work and I've listened to Brian talk about his work um, a lot over many years. You guys, you know what? I wasn't actually being snotty that time. I wasn't being a lot. I wasn't it was being just snotty. That. Lean into the word. <laughs> well, it has. That was more has, about him. A great listener. A great I listener. Very, yeah. Simply a simple statement. It's been many years, and I've heard Brian speak a fair amount about his work, and I sure. love every minute of it. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you both have a certain kind of. You just use the word devotional, Dave, and I think there's a devotional quality to the way that Brian approaches his work. Also, yeah, Dave, you are a Catholic school kid. Went to Gonzaga. Oh yeah. In D- in DC. Oh. I'm a Catholic school kid. Brian. In the way that Catholic school kids and very Jewish kids like Brian is, they, they have a certain kinds of similarities to them that, that I, I always find Catholics and Jews have a certain kind of, especially when it comes to art and creation, actually are very similar to each other. You know, the Jews don't have as much guilt as the Catholics do, but there's devotional <laughs> qualities to both. And I yeah. we could talk about this literally for hours yeah. because I think there is some deep stuff about your two cultural situations being very different on one way and very similar on another that have led you to where you are. And that leads me to my real question, which is this. You know, Brian was talking a second about how he found his way back to you and saw what you had been doing, eventually kind of figured out, oh, he'd made a career for himself in the theater. And then you guys became friends again and, and you worked together on a couple of things and then came Billions. Yeah. So I want to ask you, you have a very long credit list, right, of many things in television and in theater. And I, I guess I, the, my 30,000 foot question that gets us to Billions is, but also connects to your whole history is when you tell the story of your career. How do you tell it? What are like the big watershed moments in your career? And where does Billions sit in relation to those big watershed moments? Clearly, Billions has got to be one of them for you. It's interesting because there is a certain amount of hindsight that people look back and they're like, oh, you got on this show and then you got on this show and then you did this. And it's never been a staircase. And like, we wish it was a staircase. We wish you'd be like, you go from one and then the next and then you get the next. But it's really just like a crazy lily pads that are in this pond and you're like, I don't know, maybe if I jump on that one, it'll work. And then it doesn't. You're like, why didn't that work? It doesn't make any sense. Right. But there is something about landing on this one that brought a lot of security, being able to work with people that you have a long relationship with, that you have a shared way of telling a story, that I understand the way Brian and David tell stories, and I want to be able to help them tell their story. And I enjoy doing that. And it brings me a lot of joy. So there was a solidity about that. There was a solidity about working at from home. Um, during this time, I had two children. Both my children were born. So all of a sudden, it just things just sort of slow down. You travel so much and you go all over the world doing lots of different stuff. But it sort of stopped me physically, which was also an incredible thing. And then the last one was that both Brian and David had a lot of faith in me, right? So the way the way the character was originally conceived, he was an Upper East Side wasp, very quiet, very sort of the man behind the man. He was not anything like you saw. And we shot it in the pilot. And then these guys were just like, nope, it's, it's not the right thing. We're going to cut everything you did and you're going to go 180 degrees different. And I never would have been cast, but from their faith. And I had never played this particular role before. I never played anything. I played some parts of it sort of somewhere before, but they would not have seen it. But they had a faith in me. They were just like, I know inside of you, you can do this. And as they continued to conceive it and continued to create it, and I continued to embody it, it was one of those things that they built on this sense of faith, I think. Wouldn't you agree, B? 100%. Yeah, of course. That's something that you rarely get. You really don't ever get like you audition for something and you got to show up and you do the thing and you're like, did you do it? Or yeah. You didn't do it. Yeah. If I had auditioned for this role, I wouldn't have gotten it. I never would have. No one ever would have cast me in that role because they wouldn't have seen it. But then you see it on me and you're like, holy shit, who knew that little guy has got all that crap inside of him? It's spent. It's so fun. And for me, yeah, there's no doubt. <laughs> 
No right. doubt in our minds that right. you had but, it. But they did. And then as they continued to write it and as we continued to make we had cut everything that I had done. And they were like, look, this is what you're going to do. Like, you're the attack dog. You're his full id. Just go. And I was like, okay, I'll go. And there was this <laughs> moment when in the first season, second episode, Damien fires uh, Lewis Kinchum. And Lewis, who was a very, very big, mean guy, right? He had a line like, he's like, you're fired. And he's like, fuck this shit or fuck you. Like, that's this bullshit. Something I'm sure much better written than that. So he did that and he stepped forward and then I just stepped forward and I was like, I'll fight you. I won't ever stop fighting you. I'll die. I'll literally die. I'll try to actually eat part of your body in this moment. I was like, please, please step forward. Please step forward. I am not a fighter. I'm a lover. And I was just like, this is awesome. And I turned to both those guys and they were like, that's it. That's it. And I knew from just that one moment, just that one single step, I was like, oh, this is that fucking guy. He's like, Fucking bring it on. Get closer to me. Attack him. Please do it. And then they were off to the races. Those guys just were like, okay, now we know he can do it. And now whatever they had planned, what world they were going to then move that character, they were just off to the races. So Brian, the question for you then is, we talked a second ago about you seeing David in college and thinking, okay, platonic ideal of what an actor is. This is someone who should be working out all of that. But you then said something slightly different from that, connected to it, but different, which is that you had this kind of deep embedded faith that he could do this part and that whether we played it round or flat, whether you played it wild man yes. or the original conception, that he would do either one of those, which is different from saying he's obviously a serious actor who's serious about his craft. Well, but what a lot of that means though to me is if you're one of these actors, the kind that David and I are drawn to, it's not just yeah. a technical facility, it's that you're stoking. And this is, I mean, this is actually like taking all the artifice out. The thing that David was doing and the thing that I was doing in a different way was stoking the internal fire of what it means to be an artist and stoking that fire so that you're taking all the stuff that happens and you're not just sort of blowing it out. You're learning a craft, right? So the craft allows you the stuff that's being stoked allows you to use it, to deploy it. Because part of the thing, right, about when you're young and you meet people is, I will tell you that I have this incredibly vivid picture of Dave in the theater at Tufts with this. This is made up. uh, No, this is not. I'm not going to talk about your scarves that you wore. We we know you wore them. I have many witnesses, Dave. But no, this isn't that, though. (laughs) The truth is that he had a sense of the absurdity of the world. And yes, he was going to use the theater and, and believe in the fiction that that all this has meaning, which all of us have to believe in, right? Because we're all aware of death. But I would see Costi sometimes just stand at a remove and watch stuff because although I know what my outer affect was and I do understand what he means because I would be with a group of people, I would be able to make people laugh. I kind of like looked like I rolled through, but I was very alienated myself. And I was trying to find out why I felt like I was an observer and not a participant, even when I was in the center of things. That's how I knew I was a writer, whether I could do it or not, right? I understood there was this gulf between what it looked like when I was walking into a room and what I felt like when I was walking into a room. But I would look at Dave and I would know, oh, he's playing this certain version of himself, but he actually sees everything going on. He's looking at the world and he's grabbing all of it. And I mean, that's partially because, right, I was a writer, even if I wasn't yet writing. I was looking at things that way. And I knew that character in Levine too. And also, Heilman, starting in 2009 or 2008, Dave and I started to really get to know Costi as right. grownups. Sure. And yeah. I mean, that's part of what happens is, and, and part of the magic of this is, 
we love each other. Like, I love this guy. And not just because we have this history, but it's part of it. But I love this guy and know him, uh, his insides. So writing, there was never a doubt in my head. And obviously, that's all grown because of everything we've shared. There's this incredibly intimate thing. Someone just asked me today, Bob Roth from David Lynch Foundation, who's a wonderful guy, was asking me about the difference between series and movies. And like, there is a thing, an intimacy about writing for someone and that person receiving it for six or seven years. And you're engaged in um, an intimate conversation. It's a dialectical in a way. Right, it is, right? Costi, do you agree with that? There is a... uh, it's a deep connection when you're doing this work in, funnily enough, in the way Dave always wanted to, which doesn't mean taking every minute, but doing the work seriously, which means Levine and I are not going to give Dave something that we don't think he's going to find a way to make amazing. And he's going to receive what we give him and work really hard to make sure that it comes back to us better than we anticipated. And there is a very deep familial right, connection right. that results from this happening over the years. To me, as I look at it, I mean, Costi, what, what do you think? Sure. You know, nothing could be more explicit than the year and a half we've been going through now. In addition to there's shared tragedy in our company, and it's just, it's a long life, you know? There's birth and there's death in our company, and yeah. it's just like a really super intense, I mean... Like the second episode, my kid was 12 days old yeah. and I was absolutely fucking <laughs> wrecked. Like I've never been as wrecked in my life as that day that I went to work. And I was just like, let's do this. And they were like, we got you. We're here. We're here. You're doing it. This is it. And so on that level, that intimacy of sharing. I mean, we're lucky enough to have had this success right. over these years to be able to continue to tell this story. Um, and that is a very few people get. Part of the thing here is, you know, this is a first for both of you, Brian. You're talking about I, Bob Roth's a, a friend of, of ours, Diana's and mine also. We know Bob, and I can imagine him asking you this question. But you're talking about what's unique about this experience of writing for someone, writing a series, as it's different from writing a feature, and having it evolve over the course of many years, since, since now since 2016, now we're to the sixth year. It's like you're explaining that it's different, but you're actually also just discovering how it's different because it's not like you have any experience like this. You know, this is the first series you've ever had that's gone on for six years. So this is a new, a new discovery. Right. It's a new discovery for you. Absolutely. And David, as far as I know, you know, there have been a few things you've been on for a couple of years, but you've never had anything that's been this long running in any forum before. So this is even, so this is also yeah, what's part of what's magical about it is that you both are doing this thing for the first time. So you're learning together what it means to do something over the span of years together. And you have all this other history together. You know, it might never happen again to either one of you in your career. I mean, it's a kind of extraordinary, right? Yeah, it might. It's also fascinating because it all starts from the writers. So the writers, those guys have changed. What they were interested in in the beginning is different than they're interested now. And that's changing. And one of the sort of the mysteries of, I think that people look at actors and they're just like, what do those guys do? And that on some level, you, you have to listen so attentively with your whole being. It's not just your brain and not just your heart, but your spirit and really listen to what, you know, I went to graduate school and <laughs> this is where Brian's love of the American theater has sort of, sort of that that's why we know we're so together. But that one of the things that we were trained to do is that everything you're doing, everything the actor is doing is in service of the writer. There isn't anything that you should be doing that isn't actually getting to the heart of what the story is, about how the story is, about where the story is, about why the story is. And that's hard to do. And it's particularly rewarding when you actually can watch somebody change the way they develop, the way they sort of hone 
what this particular world is because in the beginning it's kind of like it's here it's here and it's this and then it gets closer and closer to what it is and we get more adept the story the people who are doing it who are saying the words get more adept at actually pinpointing exactly where the story's going what the world is how how to play it i mean knowing dave's approach and I mean, you just watched episode 11 and season five, and there was a tragedy. You know, there were some scenes right. that Damien couldn't do because of what happened in, in his life. And there's a one scene that was going to be played by Damien, and it's an essential scene. And we had to change it a little bit to have David play the scene, and it's the scene he plays with Harry Lennox. And it required Wags to shift to a mode that we always knew was there, which was his core capability if he has to pick up the mantle. And with hardly a conversation about it, you know, David Levine and I were just, oh yeah, well, we can give this to Costi. And we had zero doubt that he would actually take that thing and that wags, you know, this incredible melding of a character and the human being, right? Because Costi is also a real leader on set. Dave in that scene brought a magic to it totally different. That scene is totally different than what it would have been had Damien played it. And it's just so incredibly effective in its way. And it's not just, oh, the whole history of us makes that work. But I can't tell you how perilous that could have felt being the writers in that situation where you've built something and you're building to an incredibly important for the show climax. And now you have to put someone in who wouldn't have been in necessarily. We had a brief combo, but it was like, okay, this is Wags in the real reasons yeah. he was hired originally right. by Bobby right. Axelrod. So he's going to step, right, David? I didn't so, think twice about it. Right. To me, I was just like, yeah, put me in. Like, right. that, that's his job. He's like, put me in, coach. Like, he's been ready. Speaking of ready, I am now at this point really ready now that I know the history of you guys, which I did not know before today. This Tufts connection is all news to me and I'm still kind of getting my head around it. I'm now ready for a deep dive into, you know, how you guys work together, making billions, you, uh, David and and Brian uh, and the other David. And I want to talk about the evolution of WAGs and the effects of COVID on the production of the show. It was, you know, you guys were affected like a lot of shows were, but you in a very, very dramatic way. You know, having to split the season into two pieces, the kind of before times and the after times, as Brian calls them. And so I want to talk about all that. And then, of course, Brian, I, I want to get back to you and I want to talk about your whole storied past in, in the music business and the movies that you made before Billions and the pretty dark periods in your in your life and your career and, and how you kind of pulled through all that stuff. You know, we want to talk about Tracy Chapman. I want to talk about Rounders. I want to talk about Malkovich. There's a lot to talk about. And we've already been doing this for like an hour. So, uh... Of all the things that I regard as both predictable and predicted, the most predictable and most predicted thing maybe in the history of Hell and High Water was that my Brian Koppelman podcast would turn into a two-parter. And here we are. We're at that point where it becomes a two-parter. So that's what it is. Everybody listening here, now that you've finished this, I hopefully you'll be like, yeah, I can't wait for fucking part two. And we will see you, we three, Costi and Copy and me, will see you tomorrow or hear you tomorrow or whatever tomorrow with part two of this very special two-part episode of Hell and High Water featuring the Brian Koppelman and his scarf-wearing college classmate and friend, David Costable. We'll see you part two tomorrow. Come see us, come hear us, come be with us. And until then, sayonara. 